Today we are joined by child Holocaust survivor Dr. William Gingle to share his family's story surviving the Warsaw Ghetto. So glad to have you here with us, Dr. Gingle. My pleasure. Yes. Okay, well you have quite the story to tell and I would love to kind of start from the beginning. You were a child um, throughout this journey of when the Holocaust was happening. Tell me where this began for you and your family. Well, um, the war in Germany and Poland started September 1st, 1939. That's when uh, the Nazi Germany declared war on Poland. And that's when they attacked Poland. And uh, my mother was pregnant with me at that time. Mm. And I was born on September 20th, 1939. Wow. One day after I was born, the hospital that I was in was bombed. Now I have to kind of regress a little bit and talk a little bit about my parents. Uh, my mother was about 5'2 in height, probably weighed maybe 120, 130 pounds. My dad was about a foot taller, about 6'2", and I kind of called him a hyperactive adult. But one of the things about my parents is that they seemed to anticipate things quite well and they tried to plan ahead of time. So when Germany declared war, my dad was already trying to anticipate what would happen to the Gingold immediate family, especially when my mother was pregnant and was due to give birth. So as soon as the birth was given, my dad came to the hospital and took us out of the hospital immediately, which is a tough situation, even in the best of times. And one day after my mom and I were out of the hospital, the hospital was bombed. Mm. So we were kind of fortunate in terms of anticipating at least my dad and mom were anticipating what might happen. So as soon as we were out of the hospital, the goal was to get out of Warsaw because Warsaw was being bombed. And just a little bit about Warsaw. Warsaw was kind of a cultural capital of Europe at that time. It had a population of about one point to three million people. Mm. But interestingly, one third of those people were Jewish. So it was a very high population of Jewish people in uh, Warsaw. But the whole intent once the war started was for the people, both Jewish as well as the Polish people, to get out of Warsaw because Warsaw was being bombed. So the only way to move was to go east, which was towards Russia. So anyway, so once my dad, my mom, and I were out of the hospital with thousands of other people, they started moving towards the east in terms of 
getting to the Russian mm -hmm. military encampments, which were in the eastern part of Poland at that time. Mm. So, <clears throat> so the track was to get there as quickly as possible with thousands of other people. And all of the roads had people fleeing from the bombings, etc. And unfortunately, people that stayed on the roads, usually the German fighter planes would fly over the roads and machine gun those people. Mm. Again, we were very fortunate in terms of my parents anticipating. So they were always in the gullies by the roads, but never on the road and in the woods where the planes couldn't see mm. the people actually trying to escape going east. So anyway, to make the story a little shorter, we uh, got to the Russian encamp military encampments in the eastern part of Poland, and uh, we were loaded on trucks with hundreds of other people. Unfortunately, the trucks were German trucks. Mm. They weren't Russian trucks. And the reason for that was Germany and Russia had a non-aggression treaty in place at that point in time. And the non-aggression treaty basically said they wouldn't go to war with each other or try to kill each other. So they put us on German trucks, and the German trucks took us back to Warsaw, Poland. And that's where we wound up being placed with, which was an enclave, which was eventually turned into what was called the Warsaw Ghetto. So that was our first escape effort mm. out of Warsaw. So here we are in the Warsaw Ghetto in a one-room apartment that wasn't totally bombed out. No, no mattresses, no heat, no light, and I'm still a baby. I have an older brother as well, who's about seven years older, and he's kind of featured mm -hmm. in the book that was written about the Gingold family. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so we're in the Warsaw Ghetto, and my dad, as I mentioned earlier, was kind of always anticipating and always thinking, how the heck do we get out of whatever situation that we're in? So, <clears throat> again, to make the story a little shorter, <laughs> uh, survival in the ghetto was very difficult. So when you guys were making the trek from Warsaw in your first attempt to the Russian encampment, area. How long would a trek like that take? About two weeks. By foot? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. And so once you were there, were all of those Russian encampments all kind of anyone who arrived there ended up being brought back to Warsaw? Well, they were put on uh, basically German trucks mm -hmm. because of the non-aggression treaty and they were brought back to Warsaw. Wow. Now, the Jewish people, uh, aside from the Polish people that were also fleeing, 
were put into the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. The Polish people were just put into Warsaw. Mm. Okay. Now, how big is, was the Warsaw Ghetto? Okay, well, let me describe a little mm -hmm. bit about Warsaw without taking too much time. Warsaw, like I indicated, had a population of about 1.2, 1.3 million people at that time. And um, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto was approximately a little over a square mile. Uh, approximately, so about 12, 13 blocks squared. And within that confines, which was about 2.5% of total geographic area of Warsaw, the Warsaw Ghetto, just 2.5%, it had at the maximum time 400,000 people. And the other 97 0.5% of the rest of the people, which were two-thirds. Mm. So one-third of the people were in an area that was 2.5% the size of Warsaw. Wow. So the compression was very high. On the average, there were seven to nine people in one room in the Warsaw ghetto. Mm. And there was a purpose for that by the Nazi regime and that was to basically have people die, to confine them, but without using bullets mm. to uh, have them perish. Mm. And let me again kind of describe the war, so get a little bit. Uh, aside from that small area with a huge confined population, a wall was built around the ghetto area, a brick wall, which varied anywhere from 10 to 11 feet and had barbed wire and glass shards. So the intent was not to let people out. Mm. Yeah. At one time, that enclave had 32 entrances and exits. Mm. When the wall was put up, it had only four. Wow. So the issue of control was the main purpose. Not only that, but also to have people die was the primary purpose. The major cause of people dying in the Warsaw Ghetto was starvation. About two-thirds of the people that were inside the ghetto starved of starvation. Though there was, were multiple causes, such as disease was rampant because they were limited in terms of water. Uh, there weren't any physicians or medical care or pharmaceuticals. And of course, there was also associated brutality in terms of uh, abuse of people, etc. I won't go into the details there. So, Life was very, very harsh, and, and one of the reasons that book mm -hmm. is called Tunnel, Smuggle and Collect is that one of the main efforts of the people in the ghetto was to build tunnels, not only to, between buildings in terms of communication and uh, trying to help each other, 
but also to try to build tunnels under the enclosure. And the fortunate part was that around about two-thirds of the surrounding area uh, of the ghetto were cemeteries. Mm. And the fortunate part was that the Nazi patrols did not regularly patrol the cemeteries. Mm. So that became a connecting point of trying to build tunnels under the wall to the cemeteries and connect with some of the Polish resistance that were outside the wall. And that's where some of the smuggling occurred, food for other, in exchange for other goods. Mm. So that was one of the ways to have minimal amounts of food coming in because nothing was per se provided, even mm. limited amount of water was available. As I come back to the death rate, which is uh, extremely sad and important, it's about two-thirds of the people that died, died of starvation inside the ghetto. And um, uh, I have to be a little gross here. Um, when the people died inside the buildings, they would be stripped of their clothing and any things they had on them. And their body would be put outside by the building or on the street or uh, relative sidewalks. And the reason, there were multiple reasons for that. One, you didn't want to have dead bodies in your apartment uh, for disease, etc. The other thing is that the clothing was used to pass to other people that were alive. So as an example, a lot of the clothes was ripped up and given to my mom for diapers, as an example. Mm. So there were, was multiple uses for the survival goods mm. of people that were, died. Anyway, I have to bring my older brother into this a bit. He was about seven years older. Uh, and not only was he involved in helping dig tunnels, and that's what most young kids did with some adult supervision at night, but they also were their corpse collectors. So what, because there were dead bodies all over, at one time or another during the period of the Warsaw Ghetto between four to 9,000 people a day died of starvation. Mm. So you can imagine the problems that that environment presented itself. So these younger kids, like my brother Sam, would pick up these dead bodies, the skeletons or whatever, put them on carts, and these carts and would either go out to the cemetery that surrounded uh, the ghetto, or they would be cremated or put into mass graves outside. So I think you can kind of appreciate, maybe that's not the best word to use, the difficulty of trying to survive in such an environment.
How well, long was your family in the ghetto for? About two and a half years. Wow. Now, we were somewhat fortunate. My aunt and uncle was also with us on my mother's side. And my aunt was about 17 years of age. And my uncle was about 21, 22. So we were kind of a pretty stable family unit. And that's one of the things that both my parents drove uh, was the concept of family unity and how to keep the family together no matter what. So anyway, my dad being a hyperactive adult, and also, uh, I, even though he just uh, got up to fourth grade, I think he was a pretty intelligent human being, uh, was involved in trying to plan how to escape the ghetto with others. He wasn't the only one. And uh, the, during the day, usually, uh, persons that were living in the ghetto that were maybe 14, 15 years of age and older and were somewhat physically able were put on trucks every morning and those trucks would take him to various manufacturing plants for the Germans as slave labor mm. and then be, be brought back at night if they survived the slave labor. Mm. So some never came back, but most of them did. So my uh, dad, my aunt and uncle wound up also being in slave labor during that time. But they were pretty hardy folks. And uh, the nice part, if I can use the term nice, mm. was uh, with the slave labor, they received additional rations so they could stay healthier and they would then bring some of those rations back to share with my mother and my young brother and me. I have to tell you this story. I learned it when I read the book mm. after it was published. Um, one of the habits my mother had uh, as a young adult, I would take my mother out for lunch and we would just visit. Uh, and uh, one of the things I noticed is that whenever we finished eating, uh, she would e either take out a handkerchief that she had, or she uh, would take a large napkin, and anything that was viable on the table, such as maybe um, uh, sugar cubes, crackers, uh, you know, uh, um, well, anyway, uh, anything that was movable and was edible, she would wrap up mm. and put in her purse. And as an adult, I was uh, too darn embarrassed to ask her, why the heck are you doing this? We don't need that. But every time I came back to do a revisit with her, she would give me that. Mm. And I would take it because I didn't want to embarrass me or her. As to why she's giving me that, because I really didn't know, need crackers and the sugar cubes. Anyway, the the reason I, uh, you know, she did that is I found out by reading my nephew's book when he uh, he interviewed my mother and my older brother before they died 
over a six-year period, and he recorded all of this on video and audio, so I have access mm -hmm. to that. So I found out by reading the book that the reason she did that is that during the time we were in the ghetto, she would always try to collect food in a handkerchief. Mm. So when my dad and uncle and aunt came back from the slave labor activity, they might bring some extra rations Anything extra she would put in this, especially anything that was sugar. Mm. And as we were fleeing on our future escapes, of course, she had a baby with her. And to control the crying of the baby, which you didn't want to have them mm -hmm. do when Nazi patrols are coming mm -hmm. around, is she would take this handkerchief with sugar and stick it in my mouth mm. so I wouldn't cry. Wow. So that was one of the survival things that my mom did mm. in order to be quiet. Mm. So anyway, coming back uh, uh, to my dad's planning with yeah. others, uh, we, he and others collected some families and tried to go on the second escape effort through the tunnel, uh, through uh, the sewers of Warsaw. And Warsaw was a very sophisticated city, and their sewer, sewers were kind of model uh, you know, engineering projects. Mm. So anyway, uh, when they tried that approach to escape, uh, someone left the, one of the sewer lids ajar and the Nazi patrols noticed that. And when they did, they started machine gunning into the sewers. Wow. So the fortunate people that were not hurt or killed were able to go back to their units in the ghetto. Mm. And we were part of the lucky group, I guess, mm. because a lot of people died during that time. How many people would try to escape at a time? Well, usually, it, uh, my dad usually worked with a group of others secretly at night, and usually there were eight to 10 families that mm. tried to do that at a time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was not very successful. So that was our second effort to, my parents' second effort to get out of the ghetto. Mm. Because uh, everyone could read what the outcome is, was going to be in a very short time, mm -hmm. living in the ghetto or dying in the ghetto. So basically, almost all of the time was spent either tunneling, not only to try to figure out how to escape, but also to smuggle food in, etc. And as I indicated before, most of the tunneling was done at night after the men or uh, able people were able to come yeah. from the slave labor. How, was the, how did the tunneling go unnoticed? Well, uh, there were so many tunnels and uh, the Nazi 
military very seldom came into the ghetto mm. uh, because they would either send in the Polish police or they had what they called the, the capos, uh, which were Jewish people that were supposed to kind of supervise other Jewish people. And of course, some of them were nasty people, some were pretty good people, but if they didn't do what the Polish police told them to do or the Nazi soldiers would tell them to do, they would be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had to make some very difficult decisions playing this screwy role of trying to, you know, keep control of the Jewish people in some fashion under the auspices of the Pol Polish police and the Nazi soldiers. Now, out of curiosity, I know that you mentioned sure. that some people went to kind of a slave labor um, on their day-to-day, -day, but what did those that stayed, like your mom, who stayed back um, in that little space, what did, she, what did the day-to-day -day look like? Pretty bleak. There was no real interaction with the exception of other moms mm. that had children. Mm. Uh, so that was the interaction, and of course, uh, spouses would die, so the interactions were always, you know, how do you support one another, how do you share the remains of this person's belongings to be useful to keep the younger generation alive. And by the way, one of the things with Jewish people uh, and it's probably true with all people, not just uh, Jews, is that parents try to do the most they can to help their children mm. in whatever way that they can. But I think that Jewish people push it a little more than maybe other mm. uh, uh, groups of people. Um, and not only do they, you know, kind of reinforce it heavily is how do I keep my child alive? But they also at the same time say, learn as much as you can. And uh, I think one of the precepts of the Jewish people in general is that education is a high priority and learning is a high priority. And the reason for that and uh, this has always been practiced by m my parents, even though they were uneducated, if you will, from a formal education perspective, is that learn as much as you can, be as educated as you can, because that's one thing no one can take away from you. Yeah. They can take your clothes, they can take your food, they can take your body, but not what you learned. Mm. So education is always a high priority, but that's kind of sidestepping mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, basically the plan was always, how do you escape? And my dad, uh, with others, would meet when the, in the evening, late at night, usually, and try to plan different ways to get out of the ghetto. And 
to them, probably the final thought was how to use the tunnels that were always being built mm -hmm. uh, in some fashion or another. And the building of those tunnels or the digging of those tunnels was done mostly by young kids, including my brother Sam, because they could get through the tunnels much easier because they were little. Mm -hmm. Adults had some difficulties. They yeah, had to how, struggle. How big were these tunnels? You, usually, probably, I, I, I'm just estimating maybe 18 to 24 inches. Wow. So very tight. Yeah. Because they didn't have any mechanized tools mm -hmm. to dig with. They, they had sticks, you know, maybe spoons kind mm. of stuff. Wow. So it was... It was a big process. So anyway, uh, uh, moving ahead, I guess, is that um, they were able to tunnel through the under uh, the enclosure of the ghetto and um, the places that they would meet with, let's say, the uh, French resistance people at times to exchange food for goods kind of thing was also the place that they were trying to get people out to. And um, it happened probably about two years, two and a half years or somewhere around there. I have a chronology, but I didn't bring it with me. Mm. But so my dates might get, be a little screwy. Um, but anyway, um, so our family plus other families were able to go through the tunnels to the cemeteries and then at the cemeteries they dispersed. They went in different directions. And the fortunate part again about my dad, even though he just had a fourth grade education, for some reason he knew geography, I don't know why. But he knew uh, he had a wonderful sense of direction. Uh, so again, it's kind of a fortunate thing. It's called luck, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, so when the the families dispersed at the cemeteries, uh, my dad kind of took the route, knowing which way to go to the eastern front of uh, Russia, mm. or the western front of Russia, but uh, the eastern part of mm -hmm. uh, Poland. What season was this? Well, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, it must have been probably, um, I wish I had my chronology with me here. Uh, it must have been the lighter part of summer. Okay. Um, so anyway, they were very successful in doing that. It took them a couple of months to get to where they needed to get, which was the Russian encampments. Uh, and at that time, the non-aggression treaty was broken mm. by Germany because they attacked Russia, basically. Mm. So uh, we were again put on trucks. But this time they were Russian trucks instead of German trucks. When your when your family was put back on those trucks, were they thinking that they were going back? 
to the ghetto, or was it clear that this was not going to be no, the same? No, this was pretty clear okay. because uh, my parents, uh, my mom could speak four languages, my dad five. Wow. So they understood Russian and mm. could speak Russian and Polish. Um, so anyway, uh, we were put on uh, trucks, and those trucks took us to trains, to boxcars. Mm. The irony was the boxcars that the Russians had were very similar to the boxcars the Nazis had that were used to transport people to the gas chambers and the killing mm. uh, centers. Uh, but in this case, with the Russian boxcars, they actually had straw and hay and mattresses and blankets and food, etc. So the treatment was kind of a welcome mm. treatment. They weren't there to starve us to death or have us die by some disease. The main goal for them was to get us to lumber camps in Siberia. So the trains took us to northern Siberia lumber camps. And that's where we got separated from my aunt and uncle who was during that transition point of the trains. Mm. They wound up going on other trains. And we wound up going to northern Siberia. And when I say we, I'm talking about my mom, dad, my, uh, my older brother and me. Mm. So there were four of us. Uh, and my aunt and uncle went somewhere else. We didn't know where. Mm. Um, so anyway, we wound up going to Siberia. And uh, 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 kind of northern Siberia, and I don't know. Uh, again, I've learned a little bit about Siberia. Uh, actually, um, when we got on the trains to go to northern, that's when I had my first recollection as a child. Mm. I was a little over three years of age. Um, so I was lucky. I was a, ki a real little kid with a dumb memory uh, that I didn't remember anything before that. So I was very fortunate and I had a very loving mom. Mm. And I was breastfed for a long time mm. and fed to the extent that I could be fed. But so I was really a lucky baby, uh, I have to say that. Uh, but anyway... Uh, can I ask how sure. your mom managed to get through the tunnel with a baby? Well, uh, very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but you do what you need to do. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so when you were in northern Siberia, what happened there? Yeah, well, l let me try to describe that a little bit for you. Uh, northern Siberia has one month out of the year that's above 32 degrees. Wow. Okay. So let me just regress a little bit here. Uh, the trains going to Siberia stop very periodically to let people off so they could go to the bathrooms, etc., stretch, et cetera, and so on. 
And interestingly enough, that was my first experience of recollection as a, a person, I guess, is that um, some soldier would pick me up off the boxcar and put me on the snow. Mm. So that was the first time I experienced snow mm. in person uh, as a, an individual. Not only that, but uh, that was also the first time I experienced seeing other little kids. Mm. And we started to play together. So that, that was my first memory going back to that time. And the other memory that I have, which is a little strange because it must have happened in a couple of different ways, is that the Rus uh, Russian soldiers that were with us on this train all had rifles, yeah. just like the Germans had rifles. Uh, but the Russian soldiers always pointed their rifles into the ground. Mm. The German soldiers always pointed it at people. Mm. The, and I don't know how I picked that up. I remember the Russian soldiers, but I must have looked, read and see pictures of German soldiers, how they were treating the people that they were trying to keeping the captivity in some fashion or another. Mm. So anyway, those were my first two memories as a child. Not bad, really. Yeah. Um, anyway, we wound up going to Siberia, and they had these uh, uh, cottages. And what they would do is they would take a cottage and use bed sheets or, uh, to divide them. So there were, would be four units in one barracks. I guess a barracks is better than a cottage, uh, more descriptive. Uh, and uh, so they would have, you know, basically four units within the barracks. And the adults, all adults, uh, I don't know what age made up that uh, sense of adulthood at that point. Uh, would be required to work in the lumber mills to generate lumber for the Russian war effort. Mm. So my parents and other adults there would leave pretty much early in the morning and come back in the evening. So the kids were all on their own. Wow. So what it turned out to be was that uh, the older kids would wind up being the tutors of the young kids. So I was very fortunate. Um, I had, a, I think, a pretty sharp bro older brother. He would uh, get sawdust, as an example, from the mill. There was a lot of it. And put it on the floor in the barracks and use a stick to try to teach me Wow. Different symbols, because there was no school of any kind. And um, so that's how the older kids, at least my brother did that, I don't know what some of the other kids did, would do with me. So I remember that, uh, and I guess 
when I try to put some humor to it, I kind of call it maybe the first etch and sketch <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Because you could always erase it and start <laughs> over again. But anyway, uh, so that was our education there. We were in Siberia about a year because they wanted the turnover. They didn't want families too long. Uh, the Russians gave us uh, papers that would allow us to travel through Russia. And that was another experience that at least I recall is getting on a real train that had seats and windows that you could look out. And, uh, and uh, as we traveled through Russia, my mom and dad were, wound up finding temporary work on different farms, etc to try to generate some revenue and also keep us uh, as a unit there. So we did that for, uh, well, I would guess about a year, traveling through Russia until we came to Kazakhstan, which at that time was part of the Soviet Union, one of their federation countries. and. Uh, we were in Kazakhstan for about uh, two years, and my dad found a job uh, working in a, a Russian uh, boot-making factory, I think, making boots for the military. And my mom wound up uh, learning how to wheel and deal on uh, open markets. So she, you know, wound up setting up a table and negotiating, and the kids just ran wild, pretty much. Uh, mm. No school again, kind of thing. And, um, and during the time we were in Kazakhstan, my dad was arrested and put in prison. Uh, and he was in prison for uh, close to a year, maybe a little less. Um, and uh, after he got out, he was able to locate us. So my mom had a tough time keeping uh, two boys and herself uh, alive during that time. But she seemed to manage somehow with her negotiation skills and uh, her ability to communicate. She was pretty effective in that. Why was he arrested? Oh, well, that's a good story. Uh, uh, by itself. Uh, when he found us after he was let out of uh, prison, that's one of the questions we asked him. Why were you arrested? <laughs> he said, well, to my, uh, to my knowledge, uh, probably uh, anti-Semitism was very strong, not only in you know, Nazi Germany, but in Russia, as well as other countries. I mean, uh, anti-Semitism goes back thousands of years. Uh, um, so that may have been a factor. Uh, so we asked, well, that has to be more than just sad. Uh, well, he said, well, the reason they told him that he was let out is they didn't know why he was there to begin with. Oh my gosh. Because they had no record of him. 
having anything. Wow. He said they needed space. So again, luck kind of played into this life. So they let him out. We were, again, very fortunate uh, to um, have him back. He was kind of the leader of our group. And, um, and then uh, while we were in Kazakhstan, the war ended, I think, May 5th or somewhere around there in 1945. Uh, the Russian government uh, allowed, uh, gave us papers that allowed us to leave Russia. So the first aspect of that, of our family, was to try to go back to Poland to see if we could find any family members. And um, we trudged uh, through uh, Kazakhstan, parts of Russia, to Poland without getting into too much because that's a whole world by itself. Uh, we couldn't find any relatives uh, that survived in Warsaw that we could get any information on. But as we were traveling west, um, the rumor mill was pretty strong that if you could get to Berlin, uh, Berlin uh, was sectored off by the Allied forces into four or five, I think, five sectors. The Russian, Germ uh, the Russian, British, French, United States. I'm trying to think who was the other one. I can't. Uh, they, you know, the rumor mill was pretty strong that if we could get to the American sector of Berlin, we could get some help because different organizations were there trying to help refugees or displaced persons from the war in some fashion or another. So our goal after we went through Poland uh, was to head towards Berlin, Germany. And uh, we got to Berlin. It took us a long time with all kinds of uh, issues. Um, and uh, I have to tell you a positive thing here, is that uh, we encountered, of course, uh, the American soldiers. And most American soldiers always gave candy, mm. Hershey candy bars, to kids. I, know I, was, I was, what, six years old at that time, or seven, maybe. So that was my first exposure to real candy, other than the sugar cubes my mother used to plug into. Mm. So I'm really addicted to chocolate, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, so we were able to get to the uh, Berlin and the American sector. And at that point, uh, the uh, American military authority and all of these not-for-profit organizations worked not only with us, but other refugees or displaced persons. And, um, and the quickest way they dealt with most of the uh, individuals, such as the Gingles, was to move them towards what were called DP camps. 
It stands for Displaced Persons mm. Camps. And they had a couple of dozen in Germany and in Poland, mostly in Germany. Mm. And we were sent, so we were in Berlin maybe six to eight months or some relatively short period of time until we were processed to uh, to be sent to a DP camp and we wound up going to a place called Fahrenwald. Mm. Fahrenwald uh, was uh, relatively close to a large city in Germany called Munich, Munich, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 15, 20 miles from Munich. It was pretty much in uh, uh, agricultural area, farms. Mm -hmm. It was a camp enclosed by a fence. It was under American military administration. Initially, eventually, within a relatively short period of time, they allowed the people in camp to start doing self-governance. They turned over the governance to the people inside. Initially, uh, these camps had a mixture of uh, different folks from different countries. Um, but most of them had, uh, were Jewish. They may have been from, you know, Slovakian countries, Poland, etc. Uh, and uh, some Polish people that were displaced because of the war. So probably about 90% of the residents of these camps were Jewish people, mm. maybe 10% other uh, uh, people from other countries. Um, so anyway, uh, over a relatively short period of time, uh, the American military authority turned over governance to the Jewish people in the camps that uh, they were predominantly Jewish. And uh, as soon as that happened, the first thing that the Jewish folks did was uh, start writing and printing newspapers. Mm. And the reason for that was to communicate with other camps. So almost all of them published newspapers mm. for communication and what they would do is exchange papers and one of the things um, I, uh, I do a lot of presentations to schools I go I do maybe 20 to 30 a year wow. I go into the schools and talk with kids is uh, usually in these papers they would put pictures of children with uh, their names with the hopes that someone would recognize them, either as family or knew their family, etc., yeah. because they were orphans, basically. So that was one of the major reasons for publishing newspaper was to see if you could locate family. Yeah. And aside from sharing whatever uh, they could, I guess. Um, so uh, in the camp that I was, uh, that our fa immediate family was in, uh, which was uh, turned out to be the largest one 
during that time it had about 5,000 people in it. Uh, the fence became immaterial because it wasn't guarded kind of thing. It was just, uh, it, uh, the barracks that we were in were military barracks, so they were in pretty good shape where the German soldiers were in. Um, anyway, uh, uh, kind of an irony, I'll have to share this with you, is that all of the street names in our camp were names of states hmm. of the United States. Yeah. And ironically, the Gingolds lived on 14 Illinois Street. Oh my goodness. So how did you guys end up in central Illinois? Oh, well, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we were in this uh, DP camp for about six years. And at that time, so in the, uh, in the uh, 1950, 51, they started closing all of these camps because it was all five, six years after the war. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had to get, move, get these people out because Germany wanted their property back. At least that was agreed upon somewhere. So they had to close the camps, so they had to get, move the people out. And basically, the way it was handled is that at that point in time, they were trying to find countries that would accept Jewish people. And it was tough to come by, not only during the war, uh, before the war. It was also tough after the war. Anti-Semitism didn't disappear. It was carried over. Uh, quite well, unfortunately. Um, but uh, so basically, uh, as it turned out, three options were available that uh, you could leave to. You could either go to Argentina, United States, or Israel. Yeah. One of the three options. If you had family in the United States that could sponsor you, you could come pretty easily under sponsorship. But if you didn't, then it was a lottery system almost, potluck. Mm. And, uh, and my dad, again, good, bad, or indifferent, listened to certain rumors. And uh, he decided the best choice would be the United States if we got called up to go to one of these three countries. So that's how the decision was made. Uh, we, uh, uh, we left uh, Fahrenwald uh, in May of 1951. So at that time, of course, I was a kind of a young teenager already. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't go to school until I came to this country. Um, my brother, uh, well, anyway, so we were uh, put on a military troop transport in Germany, going to the United States with hundreds of other families and people. And uh, we had the opportunity to watch uh, 
the Statue of Liberty as a boat uh, skimmed by to go to Ellis Island. Now, with your name, uh, I think it's Armenian, yeah. isn't it? My grandfather so had a very you, similar experience. You had the experience. same experience. Yep. Sure, sure. Because uh, mm -hmm. I used to have a friend by the name of Kachaturian. But anyway, um, uh, we wound up in Ellis Island, like your mm -hmm. grandparents probably did. Uh, and uh, uh, that was uh, an experience mm -hmm. <laughs> with uh, millions of other refugees and immigrants. And uh, at that time, we were connected with uh, some social service agencies because we didn't have any sponsors or family here. So we were kind of on the uh, Displaced Persons uh, Immigration Act, which limited a certain number of uh, DPs here. Um, and um, based on the skill level of my parents, I think the social service agencies look to um, different communities that will, would allow my parents to start working right away. And they were both unskilled laborers uh, and um, very uneducated uh, from, a, a, from a formal educational perspective. Uh, my mom never went to school, and my dad, I think, went up to fourth grade. Uh, so uh, I think they came up with Milwaukee, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. as a place at that time had wonderful employment opportunities in the unskilled labor sector because it had a lot of manufacturing. So uh, my dad wound up working in a steel mill and my mom wound up working in a bakery mm. and my brother and I were pretty much on our own. Um, so uh, Milwaukee is kind of my home uh, city um, and interestingly enough, uh, uh, both my parents worked on those respective jobs until they retired. Mm. So that was their vocation, mm. steel mill and bakery. Mm. Uh, How did you wind up getting a PhD? Oh, well, uh, as I mentioned to you, even though my parents were, didn't have formal education, education mm. was... A, extremely high priority to most Jewish parents. And my parents weren't any different, I don't think. They never pushed, but always mentioned it to me. Mm. And uh, so uh, I, maybe I can share a couple of minutes if, if, mm -hmm. if it's okay about my education. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we came to Milwaukee in May of uh, 1951. Um, and uh, my brother, of course, was about seven years older, so he immediately uh, was not interested in any education per se. He wanted to go out to work, to make a living, whatever that meant to him. Um, so he was, you know, 18, 19 years of age, so... so uh, so here uh, I'm left alone pretty much on my own uh, as a uh, young teenager. 
And um, uh, my mom, uh, working in the bakery, uh, uh, told me that there are movies that they show in Milwaukee, that they have a lot of movie theaters in Milwaukee, in downtown Milwaukee. She said, you know, you have some time during the day, why don't you go to uh, a movie? I'll make you a, you know, you can make yourself a lunch and uh, here is a whatever, a quarter that can you know, allow you to take the bus and uh, pay for the movie uh, kind of thing. So that's what I started doing. I would uh, prepare a lunch and my mom would give me uh, the quarter that was, I guess, sufficient at that time mm. for a movie a ticket, a transportation, etc. And I would go to downtown Milwaukee uh, and go to the movies. Mm. And um, so the movies would usually start like at 11 in the morning and they would cycle like they do here. And they probably ended maybe at midnight, I don't know, because I never stayed that late. But I would sit there anywhere from four to six hours a day wow. watching movies. And uh, most of the movies that I watched were cowboy movies, mm. westerns. And um, so the, the few hours that, uh, that I wasn't in the movies, I was being tutored in English mm. uh, or because they, uh, I never went to school before so I couldn't read or write anything. Mm -hmm. I mean I could speak mm -hmm. some languages, uh, most I call them survival languages uh, in the sense I learned what I needed to learn to be able to communicate wherever we were and that's probably true with my parents as well and maybe your grandparents mm -hmm. as well. Um, so anyway, um, uh, I would go to these movies and, uh, and I would pick up their chit-chat and I would try to zero in on what they were talking about. So when they said, you know, pointed to the horse and they said horse, I would identify that. So I started to pick up and then I would bring that information with me what I didn't understand to the tutor that I had once or twice a week from the social service agency because it was during the summer. Um, so that was one way. The other thing that uh, was kind of fascinating, and um, I get uh, a little emotional t sometimes about this, is that uh, we lived in the ghetto of Milwaukee. We were one of the few white families in an all-black ghetto in Milwaukee. And um, so I wound up having a couple of friends that were my age, and we started junior high together. Uh, I have to tell you this story, if it's okay. Uh, it's short. Uh, uh, these two black kids uh, that were in the neighborhood for some reason, you know, came to be my protectorate and also my tutors. So they helped the tutoring part. Uh, 
I'll just mention their first names. Uh, one was Ben, who was a big, tall, uh, overweight teenager. Uh, at least, I think he was overweight. I, didn't, I don't remember muscles. Uh, and then there was this scrawny little kid by the name of Kenny. And for some reason, they attached to me, and they became my friends because we lived in the, somewhat in the same neighborhood. And we wound up going to junior high at the same time. Anyway, um, uh, coming back to these two youngsters, uh, uh, when I was a, a little older, I was, uh, I don't know exactly when it happened, in my 20s, where I kind of reminisced about these two kids. And so, I, uh, because we lost touch once we went to high schools, we went to different high schools. I uh, tried to find out what happened to these two kids, uh, or youngsters. And uh, I found out that Ben, the big guy, was in prison. I didn't know for what or for how long. And then Kenny, the squirrely guy, got two degrees in engineering from Marquette University and wound up being on the Olympic track team for the United States. Wow. Just never know what life leads to you. But anyway, uh, coming back to your question of my education, I, uh, it was uh, ironic, and maybe your grandparents uh, had to deal with your dad, and I don't know if your dad mm -hmm. had sisters or other siblings. Mm -hmm. He did. Uh, I, uh, in junior high, I knew a little bit of English by that time. I was uh, starting to pick it up. Uh, I was bullied a lot because I couldn't communicate well. Uh, but anyway, um, as it turned out, uh, we went to different high schools. But before that, uh, you know, I, when there were parent-teacher conferences, my parents didn't know English. Mm. I was their, their interpreter, so I sat in on parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> so I knew exactly what was being said. <laughs> but anyway, uh, as it turned out, uh, the counselor, because I wasn't too hip on uh, English comprehension at that point in time, uh, suggested to my parents that maybe I should learn some trade maybe work with my hands rather than my brain kind of concept. So he suggested in Milwaukee they have a school called, or they had, I don't know if they still do, Boys Tech, Boys Technical Trade School. Uh, because my parents didn't know any better, they said, sure, okay. Um, and I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff anyway. So I wound up going to Boys Tech, which was uh, uh, turned out to be a pretty good school. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it was they had uh, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, etc. Mm -hmm. It was kind of preparing you for the trades world. 
kind of thing. And I had some very good teachers, uh, as I remember them. Uh, when I was, I think, uh, finished 10th grade, you know, I started asking some of my teachers. I said, you know, uh, maybe I don't want to be uh, a tradesperson. Uh, so the, a couple of them met with me, and they said, well, let's see if we can figure out uh, for you to get more academics in while you're at Boys Tech. So uh, somehow they got the principal involved, and I re even remember his name and what he looks like, because he was a real sharp guy, uh, to see if I could wind up going to another high school, not just during the summer, but part-time, uh, like in the afternoons, to take other classes that weren't offered at Boys Tech. Mm. So I wound up uh, going to two high schools simultaneously. Oh. Uh, one was in kind of a um, middle upper class community, uh, uh, Rufus King High School, which mm. was a pretty good academic high school. So I went to two high schools. I was very fortunate. Uh, I graduated from two high schools. Mm. Wow. Um, and um, at that time, I had the most high school credits earned by a student oh my in Milwaukee, because <laughs> I went to all summer schools. And uh, anyway, uh, so education was pretty, got into my brain somehow. And uh, I was very fortunate. I did relatively well in school. I also was a jock at that time. Uh, so that helped in the process. Uh, and uh, I had a number of scholarships. So I uh, went to the University of Wisconsin, and I was very fortunate. I got three degrees from Wisconsin. Wow. And I got a couple from the University of Minnesota and one from UCLA. So I was very, very fortunate uh, that I was able to uh, get support. I had some fantastic uh, yeah. teachers and uh, professors uh, that helped along the way. and. Uh, encouraged me and in the interim I also joined the military Wow! Uh, when I was 21 I was in the army mm. uh, so I got a little education from that end uh, I felt I had some commitments there mm. and uh, so uh, I met my wife uh, Phyllis at uh, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin she showed up at a party that I had at my apartment, and uh, that's when we met. Oh. Uh, uh, we've been married uh, 58 years. Wow. Uh, we have, uh, we had four kids. One died when he was uh, in his 50s. Mm. Um, and we have six grandkids. My goodness. And education is still very important to me because uh, I never stop learning. Mm.
Before we wrap up, I would love to ask one quick question. Sure. Um, what long-term impact did you see your childhood have throughout the course of your life, even once you were in the United States? You mean the, uh, how the life impacted me mm -hmm. as an adult yeah. kind of thing? Well, um, again, uh, I'm not a very, uh, I'm a kind of a secular Jew. I'm not religious. Because mm -hmm. I always have questioned why would God allow genocides, whether Armenian or Jewish. Uh, but that's a different question to deal with. Uh, but uh, I've always felt that education is uh, continuing to be important, regardless of what age you're in. Uh, you learn as much as you can. Uh, and also, uh, I, I believe in some real Jewish uh, principles, and that's, uh, I don't know if you know very much about the Jewish faith. I'm, like I said, I'm a secular Jew, so I'm not one to talk about it per se, but uh, you, you kind of work on two tracks in terms of responsibility. That's the way I view it. Uh, one is with God, the other one is with people, with humanity. What do you, you know, mess up with God, you deal with God. What you mess up with people, you have to deal with people. And uh, so, when you mess up with God, you ask God's forgiveness. When you mess up with people, you ask the people's forgiveness. Mm. Uh, I practice that. Uh, and I try not to have the two mixed too much. It's t sometimes tough because they overlap. Mm. Uh, but anyway, uh, I would say uh, kind of um, taking care of others, uh, treating others the way you want to be treated. It's kind of a precept that I think I believe in. I believe in giving to the community very strong belief in that, to the extent that you can, with whatever skills or resources that you have. Um, and I practice that all the time. Mm. I try to convey that to my kids, whether they buy into it or not. That's mm. their business, because I don't dictate anything to anybody. Uh, as I told you, you know, I. Uh, I go to schools quite a bit, uh, and what I try to do is communicate some of these thoughts. How do you stop hate, as an example? It's tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough uh, at uh, any level. Yeah. Uh, but we have to try. Yeah. I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Well, I want to mention your book that we talked about at the beginning. If people want to have a deep dive into your story and your family story and journey of survival. Um, this is available on Amazon. It's Tunnel Smuggle, Collect a Holocaust Boy, um, and it's written by your nephew. My so nephew. definitely a great opportunity to really dive into your story and what it looked like in detail to survive in the Warsaw Ghetto. But L Let me just mention yes. that uh, 
my nephew wrote this book. He wouldn't allow anybody to read any of his writings until the book was published. Mm. So I learned a lot about my family by reading the book since I was a little child when a lot of this happened. Um, but the other thing I, I want to stress is that it's a well-researched book. Not only did um, my nephew interview my mother and my older brother over a six-year period, but he also researched Germany and Poland museums and uh, archives mm. in writing this book. And the real benefit I have of, is not only this book, but I also have all of the audio and video recordings of the interviews over a six-year period. Wow. What so I, I have uh, that pleasure. Uh, so I, uh, I have to thank my uh, nephew. Uh, because I'm really the only survivor of the Gingold clan. I do have to mention one item, uh, if I may, uh, and that's my aunt and uncle, who at that time, like I said, was about 17 and 21, 22, respectively. They wound up going on a different train, and their route led them to Israel. They lived in Israel, and. Uh, raised their family, but they also passed. Uh, and interestingly enough, Jeffrey Gingold, my nephew, went to Israel and pulled all of them together, mm. the living uh, relatives, for a picture, and that's in the book. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. to see that people have to get their copy. Yeah. Um, we appreciate your time here today, Thank Dr. Thank you very Gingold. much for giving me the opportunity to ramble a little bit. <laughs> Hey, everyone has a story that needs to be heard. So, thank you yes. very much. Yes, thank you so much for your My time pleasure. here today. Thank you.